Well, I'd like you to take a Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. This book in the Greek text is called the Apocalypse. You may have heard that word before, but it simply means revelation or unveiling. And I'm going to read the entire fifth chapter, 14 verses, Revelation chapter 5. I believe this is on page 1030, if you pick up a Bible on a chair around you. Listen carefully to God's word. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, how we long for communion with you as we sing and as we pray and as we look into your word. And now for communion with our Lord Jesus Christ as he breaks to us the bread of life in your word and as he carries us to the table with the bread and the cup, how we long for communion with you and we pray that you would 
in fact, open your lips and teach us yourself this morning as we meet here together. Teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. We offer you this time asking that you would superintend it for your glory and for our strengthening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Jody said, we're picking up on a two-week series. It was split up, actually, by a couple of weeks. But three weeks ago, I spoke on the fourth chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. This morning, I'd like us to open the fifth chapter. But I want to remind you that in the fourth chapter, John, the apostle, is caught up into heaven. And he sees, as through looking through an open door, the very throne room of heaven. And he sees, seated on the throne... One who never in these two chapters is called God. He's simply called the one seated on the throne. But evidently is God in all of his majesty with symbols of his justice and his grace around him. And he sees uh, these four living creatures, apparently angelic beings, which represent all of animate creation in the presence of God. And 24 elders representing all of the redeemed of all ages, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, who at the song of the living creatures themselves fall down and cast their crowns before the throne of God. And they declare his worthiness as the creator to be the one who determines the course of human history and even its end. And in front of the throne, as we saw in chapter 4, John sees a, a sea of glass like crystal, which represents the raging, chaotic powers of the universe, like the raging sea, calm and quiet in the presence of the eternal God. All is subdued and at peace. And that scene, as I said a few weeks ago, offers us contemplation for several weeks. But I had to break off abruptly because actually chapter 4 and chapter 5 are a unit and the one leads right into the other. And something happens in chapter 5 which disrupts or we might say heightens the worship that is going on in the throne room of the eternal God. John notices that on the throne, God is holding in his right hand a scroll that is completely filled, written on both sides, which would have been uncommon, and sealed with seven seals. And the following chapters are going to show that this scroll with the seals represents the various judgments of God that are going to be carried out until the end. It contains God's plan for this universe, and particularly his closing plan of judgment and redemption. And so a mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And that question means, who has the authority to be the one who will actually execute God's divine plan? And no one is found worthy in all creation. So John mourns. He weeps because it appears to him that God's plan is going to remain unfinished. Now, When I read the words and I hear there's no one able, I don't feel like weeping. Why does John have this intense emotional reaction? He weeps when he finds out that there's not a creature who is able to complete the plan of God. And we always have to remember John lives in the shadow of persecution. The letters to the seven churches that precede these two chapters are about seven churches in seven cities in western Turkey, presently, the the cities are still there. And um, he, he has oversight of these churches, and they are experiencing just the beginning of persecution that is going to come quite intense 
as the years pass. And in living in the shadow of persecution, he is looking forward to God, to, for God to intervene in judgment and to exonerate his people, show their faithfulness in the midst of the world. And the truth is, we also live in the shadow of persecution, but we don't realize it. We seem to live peaceful lives here, but this world is always passing through varying degrees of persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We rarely recognize it because we've been duped by generations of casual acceptance of religion. And uh, we don't see how really offensive the true faith is to the people of this world. Time is coming when we will see that more clearly. Now, one of the elders says to John, in the midst of his sorrow, that this is apparently not going to happen, he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, at this point, I have to remind you of something. And when we read the Bible, we have to always remind ourselves of this, that John is in a different time, a different place, he was a Jewish man raised in Palestine with all of the Eastern way of thinking that is somewhat foreign to us in the West in general, and at a time period so different from our own. And he would have been immersed in the Old Testament. The Jewish people were the people of the book. You see, on Mount Sinai, several hundred years before this event, God had come down and he had um, revealed to the people of Israel, the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And uh, these were just dry ink written on a page, but God said to them, this is what you are to pay attention to. In fact, the first commandment says, you shall not make any gods or have any gods besides me. I'm the only one. And the second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself any kind of image that represents me that you would think would be an aid in worship of some kind. Because any time you seek to uh, take the eternal, invisible God and reduce him to an image, whether it's a picture or a painting or a statue, you are reducing him to some manageable form. God forbid them from doing that, and that is why the Jewish people didn't become artists. They aren't known for their statues and paintings and mosaics and such in the ancient world, like the Greeks and Romans were known for. They were known for one thing, their adherence to the book, their knowledge of the book. They were the only society in the ancient world of which we are aware that was almost completely literate. I mean, it's an unbelievable to think that. In the ancient world, there was one society in which nearly everyone could read. The rabbi in your town took the boys and girls of the town from about age five and taught them to read. And the only thing you had to read was the word of God what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. There were no cell phones, uh, there was no Netflix, no Twitter, no Facebook, thank the Lord. The, the only psalms, uh, songs that you could sing were the psalms, and they sang them constantly in their homes and in their meetings, and to one another, uh, they greeted each other with the words of the Bible. The only stories that they talked about were stories that came from the Bible. Uh, these people, including the 12 apostles, of which John when he wrote this book, was the last one living, the only one not to die as a martyr. They were immersed in the Bible. They were saturated with the Bible in a way that no one could be today. Even the people who know the Bible the most today could never be saturated because we are also surrounded by so many other things that take our time and our attention. When John heard these two titles, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, they meant something to him. They don't mean anything to us. He immediately knew that it was, it was talking about the Messiah. The Messiah, and underline these words in verse 5, has conquered. He's already conquered. Now, um, they don't mean anything to us today, but to him they would have been clear references to two of the most a clear passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah. The first one, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, comes from Genesis chapter 49. Now, the first promise of the Messiah is found in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall. But it's rather obscure, we have to admit, about a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Clear enough for us to look back and know that it was the beginning of this great promise that would grow up. But when you come to chapter 49 of Genesis, you come to the point where Jacob blesses his 12 sons. And these 12 sons become, eventually their descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel. When he blesses his 12 sons, he does them in the order of their birth. Because the firstborn would have a double portion of the inheritance. With 12 sons, they divide everything into 13, and the first one gets two. But the first three of his sons are disinherited, at least from being the firstborn. They, they do not take the place of the firstborn. Instead, it passes to Judah, the fourthborn. And to Judah, he says this in Isaiah chapter 49, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now that is, is a most important statement. From it grew up the concept of the Messiah. It was developed because for the first time, this vague promise that there's going to be a deliverer becomes narrowed to one individual from one line of people, the tribe of Judah. Judah is going to bear the kings. The scepter, the king holds, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. It pictures him seated on his throne, perhaps, holding his staff between his feet, until, it says, he comes to whom it belongs, to whom true rule belongs. And this is the basic idea that out of the tribe of Judah would come the Messiah. He would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's given a second title in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, the root of David. This one is also very clear. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11. The whole chapter is significant, but I can't take time to read it all. Let me just note the beginning. Isaiah 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now what that's saying is that Jesse, the father of David, his tree was cut down. In fact, Jesse bore David. David had descendants who ruled on the throne of Israel until the exile. When the exile came, the kings were cut off. They were deported to Assyria and died there. But, but uh, there was no more king on the throne of Israel at that point. This was the promise out of this cut-down tree, out of the very roots, the stump that's on the ground, a, uh, a sprout, a shoot is going to come out. And that shoot will grow up to be a vast tree. The Messiah is not going to be just another branch on the tree of David. No, that tree has been cut down. But out of the very roots of the tree comes this tree that grows, uh, this shoot that grows into a vast tree. And that's the root of David. It says 
in that passage, Isaiah chapter 11, these famous words describing the kinds of things that are going to happen when the Messiah appears. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And all of that's going to come when the Messiah reigns. That's what these people knew. They believed it. John is not surprised to hear the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, which means the towering tree that grew out of the stump of David, he has conquered. He is worthy to unfold the remainder of human history. The conquering king Messiah can rule. He can open the scroll and unfold it. Don't worry. Don't be upset. God's plan is secure. And what we read next is that he looks up and he sees now that there is one in the throne room he hadn't noticed before. If you're thinking in concentric circles, he's between the 24 elders surrounding the throne and the throne with God on it. He looks and he sees one that is neither a lion nor a towering tree. He he sees in front of the throne a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, he's a a lamb standing, we presume, on his hind legs, standing up. That's uncommon to begin with. But he's obviously alive because he's standing up. But he bears the marks of having been, the word is, slaughtered. That is, his throat is gashed, out of which all of the blood would come. He's a slaughtered lamb, but he's alive. And this lamb, as he's described there, has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, remember, this is a vision. And in a vision, he's seeing these fantastic things. And we're never quite certain what is literal or to be understood literally. What we are clear on is that every one of the descriptions of these beings has some literal significance. And this is quite clear that when it says he has um, seven horns, Seven, first of all, is the number of perfection in the Bible. It's not the number of completeness. Twelve is often the number of completeness, like 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Seven is the number that reveals God. God knows everything, sees everything. So seven is this number of completeness, and seven horns is power, represents power. It's found often in the Psalms. And uh, to have seven horns is to have the completeness of God's power. That is omnipotence. Here's a lamb who has this symbolic appearance of omnipotence, which belongs only to God. And then it says he has seven eyes, which is interpreted for us as the seven spirits of God, or as I said last time, the sevenfold spirit. That is, he possesses the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, he is represented as eyes that are throughout the world. That is, he has omniscience. He sees everything there is to see. He knows all that is going on at every moment of time. So here we have this one who is a lamb looking as if it had been slaughtered and he has the omniscience and the omnipotence of God. That's what he saw. He didn't see a lion. He didn't see the conquering king. From all the passages that he knew taught that the Messiah was going to come and be a conquering king. And when he came, lion and lamb would lie down and all of those things. And I have to tell you, the significance of this fact is beyond a minor little footnote in your Bible that When he looked, he saw in the place of the conquering king, he saw a lion. This is a central fact of the Bible. It's basic to the story of Jesus. In fact, to the whole unfolding story of scripture. You see, 
the Jewish people in Jesus' time were very aware, searched the Old Testament to try to understand about the Messiah. They had these promises. They were clear on this, that the Messiah, when he came, was going to reign forever. He was going to judge the world. He was going to throw off the foreign powers that oppressed them and vindicate the people of God. They understood that. They were clear on that. There were people looking for the Messiah. Remember when Jesus was carried into the temple on the 40th day after his birth to, for a sacrifice to be offered as the law prescribed, to be offered in the temple as the firstborn son. When he was brought into the temple. There were these two aged people, very aged people, who spent all their time in the temple worshiping God and waiting for the Messiah. And Simeon, the old man, he takes the infant Jesus in his arms and he says, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the Messiah. I mean, people were looking for him. They were waiting for him, this conquering king who was going to come. But you see, there's another passage in the Old Testament that also is about the Messiah, but they didn't understand it. And they didn't understand it, we'd have to say in retrospect, for good reason. It's Isaiah chapter 53. You may have read it before. We've spoken on it here. Isaiah 53 is called the fourth servant song. It's a song in the latter half of the book of Isaiah about the servant of the Lord. When you come to chapter uh, 53 and you're reading this song about the servant of the Lord, he's described in this way, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this lamb, in the fourth servant song, he suffers vicariously in the place of of his people. He suffers and brings redemption and he gains victory in the end and they didn't know who it referred to because they couldn't figure out how can the Messiah come and be a conquering king and a suffering servant. So what they figured is this suffering servant in Isaiah 53 must be speaking about someone else, either about someone who comes before the Messiah or maybe it's about the people as a whole suffering before the Messiah comes and brings redemption. They didn't know what to do with it. So they didn't include it in their thinking. They figured the Messiah is not a suffering servant. He's a conquering king. And what happens in the Gospels is Jesus slowly reveals to his followers, especially to the 12 apostles, the reality of why he has come and who he is. And and he shows them something that they just can't understand, but he keeps talking about it. He three times predicts his death and resurrection, and they can't follow. Why is he talking about his death and resurrection? He's the Messiah. Messiah comes to conquer and to reign. And they can't figure out what he is teaching them that becomes clear after his resurrection. It begins to dawn on them that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the conquering king of Genesis chapter 49, they're the same person, that the Messiah will suffer and reign. And much of the early Christians' message is about this subject. This is uh, the subject of the book of Acts, the, the preaching of Acts and of the letters that you read in the New Testament. It's that the suffering servant is the conquering king. After all, think of it. After his resurrection, the day of his resurrection, uh, Easter Sunday, we call it. That afternoon, there are two of the disciples, they're unnamed, walking on their way from Jerusalem to a city that was outside Jerusalem called Emmaus. And as they're going along, a third man joins them. They don't realize it's Jesus. And he begins to talk to them and ask them about things. And he begins, it says, to open up the scriptures and explains to them about the Messiah. And here was his sentence. 
Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer and then to enter into his glory? See, they hadn't grasped that. It was necessary that suffering precede glory. And I know that we think today of Judaism and Christianity as two completely separate religions, and indeed they are. Um, The truth is the Christian movement grew out of Judaism. And early Christians saw themselves as the legitimate heirs of the Old Testament, the ancient faith of Israel. Judaism really started after the exile in 500 BC. Before that, it's called the ancient faith of Israel, the ancient Israelite religion. The Christians saw themselves as the legitimate heirs of the ancient Israelite religion described in the Old Testament. The children of Abraham... So in the early church, one thing that we miss is that there were generations of the Christian mission to the Jews. It started among the Jewish people. And we read in Paul that as a Jewish rabbi, he often preached to Jews in the process of being the apostle to non-Jewish people. He often went into a city, and his usual custom was to go to the synagogue in the city if there wasn't a synagogue, to find out if there were any Jews who met for prayer and, and to meet with them. That's the way that he worked customarily. We think that... When Paul's ministry closes at the end of, uh, at least recorded at the end of uh, Roman or Acts, we think that the Christian mission of the Jews ended, but the fact is, historically we know it went on for 200 more years. It was a very fruitful mission. It went on for 200 years. There are all these writings that we have from the second and third century that describe for us dialogues between Christians and Jews. And, and the subject that the Christians were always talking about was with the Jews was understand that the Messiah came not the first time as a conquering king. He came to suffer. The second time he comes, he will come to reign. The, the suffering servant is the conquering king. That, that is a whole point that is made. And in this vision, John looks as the lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God. He receives the right to rule. He receives his inheritance, so to speak, to rule over the nations. And when he does that, when he takes the scroll, giving him authority to carry out the plan of God, to finish up the purposes of God, to coin a phrase, when he does that, all heaven breaks loose. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. Now, for the rest of the chapter, I want you to picture it this way. I'm hesitant to do so because I'm going to describe a football stadium, and it seems rather mundane to describe football and the heavenly throne room, but I think this passage invites us at least to think that way because it's pictured in concentric circles. So you think of a football stadium in which a football game is being played, and on the field, in the center of the field, is the key player, the quarterback, who calls the plays. The one on whom the game ultimately falls or stands. On the sidelines, there are all of those who assist in the game. There are the players, the other players on the field. And the sidelines, there are those who assist uh, in the game. If you rely on technology... Thank you. Surrounding it is all of uh, those who assist in some way. And then in the stands, there's the cheering crowds that are looking on the game and they're cheering at what happens. 
And uh, that's the image of this chapter. John, when he looks, he sees the throne in the middle and the lamb, and he describes in concentric circles, here's what goes on when the lamb takes the scroll and receives authority. You see God and the lamb in the center. And the entourage of the throne room that was described in chapter 4, the four living creatures and the 24 elders on the field there. And then John's insight widens and he sees the things that he hasn't seen before. Around the 24 elders, there are, as on the sidelines, those who assist in the game, angels in uncounted numbers. They're the servants of the game. And, and in the stands, as his eyes widen and he sees all of the cheering crowds, he, he sees all of creation, every animate being in the universe, And what happens is when the center hikes the ball and the quarterback takes it, he receives the scroll, the angel, those on the field all fall down and worship and they sing to God. And then the angels on the sidelines, they join in and they add to this adulation and adoration of God. Then everyone in the stands, all of creation, adds to the sound their little shout and roar and twitter and squeak. And what do they say? Why do they worship him? Why do they acknowledge when he takes the the scroll that, that he is worthy? Chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed people for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Three reasons. It's very simply stated three reasons that he's worshiped, that he's worthy. First, he says, they say, you were slain. The word means slaughtered. In the most cruel and unfair manner imaginable, the Son of God died on the cross. That's a simple historical fact. It's presented that way. You were slain. And, second thing, by your blood you purchased people for God out of every nation on earth, every part of the human race. That is the divine interpretation of the death. After all, people die every day, but their death doesn't have some kind of universal significance different for the Lamb You were slain, and by your blood you purchased people for God. The people of God were bought. And then thirdly, you have made them a kingdom, corporately, and priests individually to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the intended result of the fact. So there's the simple fact, you were slain. There's the the purpose of his uh, death, the design, that is, you purchased people for God. And, And then there's the result of that, you've made them kings and priests. They worship him in heaven. They worship him because in Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, chapter 4, became the redeemer of God's elect. That's the message of the chapter. They worship him in heaven as the redeemer. You've undoubtedly heard of a, a famous, it's called a rock opera. It was written in 1970 and first displayed, the Jesus Christ Superstar it's had quite a revival, actually. It's presently in Chicago with the new, new people playing and so forth. The storyline of Jesus Christ Superstar, which is presented as a rock opera, it's mostly sung, there's very little speaking parts in it, 
is uh, written from the perspective of Judas, one of the apostles, obviously, the one who betrayed him. But in Jesus Christ Superstar, he's portrayed rather sympathetically as someone who just is bewildered by Jesus. Jesus isn't doing the things that he expects him to do. He can't figure out who he is and why in the world he's doing things the way he does. And I'd like to, to close by thinking about the words of that song and comparing them to what is sung in heaven. Look at the the first verse together. Judas says, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you could have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Don't Get me wrong, I only want to know. And then the chorus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? Second verse. Tell me what you think about your friends at the top. Who do you think beside yourselves, the pick of the crop? Buddha, is he where it's at? Is he where you are? Could Muhammad move a mountain, or was that just PR? Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake? Or did you know your messy death would be a record breaker? Don't you get me wrong. I only want to know. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What did you sacrifice? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? You know, in so many words, That song represents so clearly the feelings of this world. All those multitudes of people who are sitting in the stadium of this world and watching the game of life unfold on the field and either cheering or booing. They don't understand the game. They can't quite figure out what it's all about. They're mystified and bewildered and doubtful, and they don't understand who this Jesus is. So they write songs like that. The fact is, on earth, they still don't know who he is. After 2,000 years, after portrayals of Jesus, the preaching about Jesus that's gone out through all the world, after hanging him on a cross and numberless crucifixes so people can see that and understand it, they, they don't know who he is. But what we know from Revelation chapter 5 is that in heaven, they know who he is. And they worship him as the redeemer of God's people, the controller of history, the final judge. On earth, they don't know who he is, but in heaven, they know. And what we do when we meet together, particularly when we come to the table, what we do is we take ourselves out of the stadium of this world and we put ourselves in the stadium of heaven, the throne room of God. And we join all those around the throne. We side with the worship of heaven. We acknowledge that worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you ransomed for God people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this image that we are given in symbolic form. We are sure that the reality that it points to swallows up the meagerness of the image in praise that will go on for eternity. And so as we come before you, we 
ask that you would, in fact, grant to us that communion with yourself, that you would give it to us as we bring our hearts to you and as we come to the table, that communion that is enjoyed in heaven where you are worshipped and praised as the triune living God forever. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.